most patients suffering with epilepsy don't want large craniotomies. They don't want to be in the hospital for seven to 10 days, right? And so this whole new approach, I think hopefully is going to change that issue, right? You're going to have more patients willing to undergo surgical therapy with, with an ultimate cure. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Nursery Podcast. Today we're delighted to be joined by one of the UM faculty, Dr. Jonathan Jagged. Dr. Jagged runs not only our trauma uh, department or division, but also the functional neurosurgery uh, division of neurosurgery here at University of Miami. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. Great. So today we wanted to talk about um, cognition and how it relates to epilepsy because we've covered some of the other areas like Parkinson's disease and dementia, but you specialize in a lot of surgeries, I know, but you, you really do some very sophisticated work on epilepsy. And I know there's a lot of different kinds of epilepsy surgery. So tell us a little about what you've been doing lately uh, that's more minimally invasive. Right. So, I mean, we primarily do adult epilepsy. And I think, the, you know, obviously the most common uh, cause of adult epilepsy is temporal lobe uh, issues, um, primarily uh, in the mesiotemporal regions. And so, you know, historically, the way you would take care of those type of issues in, in an attempt to cure somebody with epilepsy is through large craniotomies, um, you know, all with the goal of trying to get to the mesiotemporal structures. And obviously, in, in so doing, you, you, you cause a lot of collateral damage in the temporal lobe with tissue removal just to get to these deep areas uh, for removal. And when you do that, you can cause significant neurocognitive issues, speech issues, many different things that are well known. Um, so in an attempt to try and avoid those type of neurocognitive side effects from those type of surgeries, what we're, what we're doing now is a, a more minimally invasive approach with what's called LIT. Um, and this is uh, using a laser uh, probe, which can be delivered through a three millimeter hole in the occipital region along the axis of the amygdala hippocampal complex. And what you're doing by doing that is very selectively ablating the structures that you need to ablate to cure epilepsy. And by doing it with that approach, you're avoiding all of the extra temporal or extra tissue removal that you would need through a craniotomy. And therefore, we have data now to show that the neurocognitive side effects are more minimal and patients tolerate these procedures better. They're in and out of the hospital more quickly. The seizure cure rates seem to be similar to what you get with a larger procedure. And again, with much less neurocognitive side effect. Now, JP, you, you guys actually did some research on this, right? Yeah, when I was a medical student here at Miami, um, one of the more interesting projects I was involved in was with you, Dr. Jagged, looking at, as you mentioned there, the seizure freedom and so the efficacy of this technique compared to the traditional craniotomy. And then also we, we did a secondary study that you alluded to there where we looked at the cognitive outcomes. And as you would expect, when you're doing a much smaller procedure versus a large open surgery and you're manipulating less brain tissue just to get to your target, 
um, the cognitive outcomes were better, unsurprisingly. Um, it, it's funny to sit here between two minimally invasive surgeons, though, <laughs> and of course, different regions of the neuroaxis. On the two ends of the body. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's right. Exactly, top and bottom. Uh-huh. Um, so where in your career, because I know you've been doing this a long time, but where in your career did you start hearing about and then gradually adopting uh, this lip procedure and what kind of drew you to it? Right. So, I mean, we've been doing this now for a number of years. I, I think, our, you know, the first time we we did this was back in 2013. So it's actually been about what, you know, eight years now. Yeah. Um, and, you know, how we came to do this, I think, was primarily, you know, the use of lit for tumors um, and, and then, you know, trying to transition that to, to the field of, you know, selective ablation for epilepsy. Um, and around that time, you know, some of the other, uh, you know, uh, neurosurgeons in the department were using it for tumors. So we kind of, you know, decided, well, let's, you know, use this for epilepsy. Um, there was some, you know, data out there at that time, early data that suggests that it was, that it was doable, that it was useful, that it produced good outcomes. Um, again, very small series. Um, since that time, you know, we've done about, I think we've done about 90, close to maybe 100 of these here. And we've published a number of uh, papers showing the consistency in, in outcomes, usually about a 65, 67% seizure freedom rate, which is very similar to what you get with a larger craniotomy. Now, Jonathan, in this mini-series, we've talked a lot about um, these functional disorders, if you will, the brain that have impaired people, whether it be depression, OCD, psychiatric problems, uh, dementia, or movement disorders. And all of those, I think, are immediately apparent in terms of their impact on a patient's life. So let me back up and, and ask you about when you're doing these surgeries and you see these patients in clinic, what is it like? In other words, you know, most people know someone who had a seizure, they've seen a seizure, but what is it like for a person to have epilepsy? And like, what, how, how disabling is this problem? Right, so that, that's a great question. Um, you know, most people, right, think about epilepsy as just a, 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 you know, isolated events, you know, that interrupt a patient's life. But what's truly going on, right, is every time a patient has a seizure, that's damage, it's, it's an insult to the brain. And, and over time, um, these, these patients do develop very significant neurocognitive issues, particularly memory-related issues, you know, all of the things that these mesiotemporal structures are, you know, um, responsible for, which is primarily memory. They start to, you know, forget when to take their medication. They can't, you know, function and do anything. You can't go to work. It's, it's a devastating disease, um, and, it, and it gets worse with time. So, you know, you know the goal is always to interrupt that, uh, that progression, that propagation of neurocognitive side effects by, you know, surgical means. And if you do surgery on it early enough, do you think that, I mean, I'm sure there's evidence to show this. It actually interrupts that cascade if they have fewer seizures. Hundred percent. So, so there's there's strong, strong evidence and data out there to suggest that if you interrupt this, if you can cure someone, if you can even reduce the seizure frequency, they will benefit neurocognitively from that. They may even have some reversal of the neurocognitive effects at the, the point that you intervened. More so than pharmacologic control. Absolutely. I, I, I don't, I, you know, so I, I don't know of any really good pharmacologic control when you're intractable, right? I mean, when you're intractable uh, with epilepsy, you've already failed two, you know, trials of medication, and the data suggests that there's probably less than a 5% chance that in your lifetime you'll ever be controlled with, with any further medication manipulation. So at that point, you really, your only option is, is surgical if, if you really want to try and get seizure freedom and, and neurocognitive, you know, repair. 
So what's the pathway like for patients to wind up in your clinic? I imagine that like so many disorders that we treat that initially have trials of, of medical therapy and, and need to fail that, they work their way to you through neurologists. Um, and our podcast is listened to not only by neurosurgeons, but by nurses, uh, advanced practice providers, uh, neurologists, people, all, all sorts of people associated with and adjacent to our field. So for patients who may be listening, who are on this road or for other providers and physicians and adjacent fields, how, how have you seen patients find their way to you, particularly those that end up getting offered a surgery and having good outcomes? So, yeah, I mean, you know, from a patient's perspective, if there's any advice that I can give a patient is, uh, you know, if you're suffering with epilepsy, number one, you really should be managed at a, um, at a center that is, um, you know, uh, that has a surgical epilepsy center. Um, you should be seeing a, an epilepsy trained neurologist, not just, you know, I think, you know, a neurologist in general, and you really shouldn't be managed by your primary care physician. Ultimately, the way you would find your way to a surgical option is by being managed at a center that offers this type of therapy, and more importantly, by neurologists who are familiar with this type of therapy. Um, the gateway is always through the neurologist, um, and certainly, you know, neurologists in this day and age at these epilepsy centers of excellence are very surgically oriented, right? So, in other words, if you're in their hands and you're failing medical management, they're going to offer you the option of surgery. And there's many different surgeries out there now that can either cure epilepsy or decrease seizure frequency significantly. And then, you know, by that, by doing that, improving quality of life. Um, we, you know, we've been doing a, a bunch of minimally invasive procedures, not just lit, um, neuropace, um, deep brain stimulation for epilepsy. I mean, we're doing a lot of minimally invasive procedures um, that ultimately um, decrease seizure frequency and then again in a subset of patients even offer a cure. Yeah, so maybe to turn that question on its head, kind of as, as you alluded to, the, the gatekeepers are the neurologists as they refer you these patients. Maybe having taken the patient's perspective, let's speak now to uh, young surgeons starting their career who have an interest in this field, they're getting out of fellowship, they're looking for jobs at these centers. Maybe you could uh, give some advice on how to reach out to the neurologist and how to start forging these relationships to get the patients to their clinics eventually. So, you know, I, I mean, I'm not sure I understand the question. I mean, I, I don't really understand. So, so tell me what you're, you know, try and tell me. Just what a, some advice for young neurosurgeons starting out on how to uh, you know, get these referral relationships. Well, for, and, first of all, I mean, again, I, I think it, the kind of, it, it's a, it's almost automatic to some extent, right? If you are a young neurosurgeon, right, and you have decided that you're going to practice either functional neurosurgery or epilepsy, right, you, you routinely would be at an academic institution. It's very rare to do this stuff in a private setting, right? So if you're that individual and you are working at an academic center and you have an epilepsy center of excellence, you're going to have that relationship. That relationship right. is almost built in. I mean, I don't know how else. That's that's based on what you chose to do in neurosurgery, um, and hopefully you land in a center that you can do what you what you trained to do. But as as a team member of a, you call it like an epilepsy treatment group. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, there, there are designated what are called level four epilepsy centers across mm -hmm. the country, and these are epilepsy centers that have reached a certain academic threshold, right? And they're, they're given this accreditation. Um, and, and those centers are the centers that offer, you know, all the surgical, you know, um, therapies that are available, offers, um, you know, research, you know, for opportunities um, for patients as well. Um, 
And so those centers have a group, correct? It's a group. It's an epilepsy group. So in that setting, and this is this is sort of like a, been a theme through this miniseries, which is like in a spine center, you know, there's a lot of pushback about like, are the physiatrists going to meet with us to decide who gets injections versus surgeries? And the surgeons have very been very resistant to that, right? But in functional neurosurgery, there has to be a team approach, and they're involved in the pre- and post-op care and all that, right? Is, do, does that tend to work very fluidly, or is there... Is there conflict? Is there disagreement about who should get a treatment, for example? Yeah. So I, that, that, again, another great question. I mean, I you know, so no, it, it works pretty. It, it's pretty fluid. I mean, I, you know, this is I think in the in the field of, of functional epilepsy, these are well defined approaches. Okay, they've actually been studied. The outcomes from these procedures have actually been shown to be better from this group approach, this multidisciplinary approach, where you as a group select the patients. You don't as a individual say you're getting surgery, you're not. That group effort actually produces better outcomes. Hmm. So let, let me ask you about something that came to, to mind uh, a while back when I was speaking with Charles Liu, who I did residency with. And he was doing epilepsy open surgery, not like what you're doing. And he was describing to me the public health impact and how this is sort of an under-recognized problem because, as you indicated, most people with intractable epilepsy, they can't hold down a job. Yeah. And they're young. And so, and not all young, but many of them are young. And so they go through their lives on, say, Medicaid, welfare medicine. And so they don't become like a rich economic target, maybe. And so it becomes this problem, maybe the opposite of, say, spine, right? Where functional neurosurgeons maybe are reimbursed more poorly or, or the patients have more social and economic dynamics that make it hard to get a surgery. Tell us a little about what it's like to take care of this because I, I, it's foreign to most spine surgeons. Not that we don't operate on people that are poor, but there's a different dynamic for sure there, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a different dynamic. Um, I, again, I, I don't know that I, you know, as a neurosurgeon, you know, who comes in really at the tail end of, a, of an extensive workup to, to perform these procedures, I don't know that I can comment on, on the intricacies of what you're talking about. I think that that is something that the, the neurologists probably deal with more so than I do. Um, what I will say is that, you know, getting back to the economic impact, right, and, and you know, you, you ask yourself, well, why does such a small fraction of those suffering with this disease even end up getting surgery, right? Why are these people, why are these people not getting this very, very, you know, efficacious therapy more often, right? And I think the answer is that most Patients suffering with epilepsy don't want large craniotomies. They don't want to be in the hospital for seven to ten days, right? And so this whole new approach with lit, with these um, devices that can be implanted in a minimally invasive way, short hospital stay, not a lot of perioperative morbidity, I think hopefully is going to change that issue, right? You're going to have more patients willing to undergo surgical therapy with with an ultimate cure, right? And ability to get back to work, society, contribute economically, um, and not be a burden on the economic system. I think that's what the goal of this is, right? That's the goal of minimally invasive surgery in general, right? Is to get more people effective therapy. Yeah, you're you're getting them back to a functional role in society. Yeah, and you know, using these minimally invasive techniques, you're avoiding that ten day hospital course, which is not only terrifying for the patient but cost more for the of system. Of course, correct. That's um, right. What are these conversations like in the clinic when you're meeting the patients and you're offering them the surgery and describing it to them 
how how do they react? Do they come in expecting that? Oh, I have to have a brain surgery, and then you give them the good news. Right. So you know, again, in in in, in an epilepsy center like ours, I mean, when they get to my clinic, they pretty much have an idea of what they've decided okay. in terms of what they want. But I I I would say to you that I think, you know, I've never had a conversation with a patient where I've said to them, you can either get a temporal lobectomy or I could make a three millimeter, you know, hole in the occiput of your skull and potentially get the same efficacy or seizure freedom rate with you being in the hospital for 24 hours out the next morning, or you can have your craniotomy and be in the hospital for seven to 10 days, ICU time. I, I, all of the patients are, are much more willing, obviously, to undergo the minimally invasive approach. Um, so I, I think that that ultimately, as this starts to become more commonplace, I think there are going to be more patients who are willing to undergo these procedures. Are there any downsides? Like, you know, it's, I know your complication rate is extremely low. I remember at USC, uh, we had a functional surgeon there, and it seemed like there were a lot of hemorrhages after these sort of minimal surgeries, right? Yeah. But I know your complication rate is extremely low. Are there any real downsides? Like, can you still get the temporal lobectomy if this fails? You absolutely can. So this does not limit you from, you know, getting a temporal lobectomy if, you know, this fails. Again, I think if this procedure is done correctly, I think it's very uncommon for it to fail. I think the two ways it fails is, you know, you leave some tissue behind that you, you know, didn't appreciate or you don't have the right focus for the given, you know, patient, right? Mm -hmm. And you certainly, nothing's ever 100%. You know, you do your best to minimize any of these these things. But, you know, if you're ablating an area that's not the cause, you, you're going to fail. Yeah, and so, again, I, I, I'm sitting here between the two of you and I just keep seeing these parallels between spine surgery and this epilepsy surgery and the open and the minimal approach. And one of the controversies you could say, or one of the things that frequently is discussed in the world of minimally invasive spine is from the resident perspective, losing the experience, losing the training of doing the open surgery. How do you feel at a center where you're training residents? I know you take fellows as well. Do you think the art of the temporal lobectomy is falling by the wayside? And is that such a bad thing if lit works this well? You know, so I, I would I would say, you know, f for me, uh, in my own personal perspective, it's it, it's always patient first, right? So, right. I mean, I, there's no doubt that, you know, you can worry about these things. I think there's always going to be a subset of epilepsy patients that for one reason or the other is going to need a temporal lobectomy. So I, I don't think that, you know, the temporal lobectomy is going to go the way of the dinosaur. I think it's going to be around mm -hmm. and, and it's going to be utilized. I think it'll be utilized less. There's no doubt about it. But I think if you are in a center training as a, as a young neurosurgeon um, in a center that does surgical epilepsy, you're going to see a fair amount of temporal lobectomies throughout your, your, your training. I don't think this is going to take that away. Yeah, you know, JP, that's good that you brought that up because temporal lobectomy done properly is one of the most beautiful brain surgeries there is, right? And Amazing from anatomy. A, yeah. From a surgeon's perspective, of Amazing. course. But let me ask you about, because this has been a recurring theme in this mini-series, so the, the surgery, the LIT, the laser interstitial therapy, is that what it's called, right? Laser interstitial thermal yeah. therapy. Yeah. Thermal yeah, therapy yeah, yeah, yeah. is an ablative uh, procedure, if you Correct. will, right? And there's been a lot of talk about this push-pull between ablative and stimulative types of procedures, and you did bring up neuropace, right? Mm -hmm. So can you tell us about how, because seizures, of course, you like, you stimulate to avoid a seizure. Is that possible? Right. You know, like, tell us about how neuropace even theoretically works. 
Right. So, so for, first, I think we need to make two distinctions here, right? So, so you they're, they're not you can't compare the two, right? So, a lip procedure or an ablative procedure is a procedure that you're doing to ultimately cure someone, right? A neuropaste procedure is you, you've already determined that for one reason or another that patient can't be cured. So now what you've done is you're, you you've gone down the path now of palliation, right? You're deciding now mm. can't cure you, but we can certainly improve your quality of life. We can certainly prevent the, this, this rapid progression neurocognitively by using devices that can minimize the number of seizures that you're going to experience and thereby improve your quality of life and prevent further neurocognitive decline at, at the same pace. So, you know, uh, neuropace is that type of therapy. And what neuropace consists of is a, is a generator. This generator is connected to two wires or electrodes, and these electrodes are put into really any area of the brain that you, that you want to put them into dependent upon where you think the epileptogenic focus is or these networks are um, where these uh, seizures propagate through, right? So what this device does is it's, it's just like a pacemaker defibrillator, right? So you ask, well, why, why, does, why does delivering electric shock to the brain interrupt, right, seizures? Well, if you think of seizures as an arrhythmia, right, you use the analogy, you defibrillate the brain and you're arresting that that that, you know, arrhythmia and, and essentially interrupting the, that seizure and interrupting the symptoms that come along with it. And so that's the theory behind it. You're just defibrillating the organ. Just like the terminal man. That's it. <laughs> well, Dr. Jagged, we want to respect your time. I know you have a full clinic this morning. Um, for myself, it's great to see you again. Yeah, and it's, it's a lot awesome. of fun to talk about uh, these projects that I was involved in when I was a student here and uh, see where you're taking all of it as your series continues to expand with the lit. Um, and you continue to advance not only your own practice, but uh, the field as a whole for all these patients who, as you said, are excited with the new minimally invasive option. Um, so thank you so much for joining us today here on the Neurosurgery Podcast. Thank you, guys. It was great talking about it, and I'm you know, optimistic about the future. <laughs>